I can see that mem- many of you got the memo this morning that you were supposed to be wearing your cowboy boots. Genuine Colorado elk hides. Can you say Yahoo? I love communion. It reminds me of what Jesus did for me. And it always puts a tear in my eye to remember that his body was in many different ways broken for us. We realize, according to Scripture, not a bone was broken. But he was beaten. He was brutalized. His beard plucked out by the hands full. He was punched time without number. A crown of thorns on his head. Uh, he endured everything that my sins deserved. I'm uh, appreciative greatly for the celebration of communion that we do the first Sunday of every month. Uh, and then the most heart-wrenching of all for me is the cup that represents his blood. I've never shed my blood for anyone's sins. And that he, the perfect son of God, would shed his blood to wash away my sins is to me an unbelievable privilege that none of us deserve, did we? But that's what love does. If there is no other message that you get out of this morning's teaching than this, grasp onto this, God loves you. There is no greater demonstration of that than the cross of Jesus Christ. And that should be you and me bowing at the foot of the cross. We don't glorify the cross. We glorify the risen Savior, but we're thankful for the cross because it keeps us humble. It washes away all of our sins. It keeps us dependent upon God. As we realize apart from Him, Scripture says, I can do nothing. The cross is a good reminder. People often ask, how come we don't have a cross that's central in our church? Because Christ is risen. Christ is risen. In fact, quite frankly, if every piece of the cross that had been marketed in the last 2,000 years to gullible church folks was all put together, you could build another Empire State building. I mean, I don't know what's a... We don't worship the cross. I don't need an artifact to remind me of that. But I do need to remember, especially during times of communion, as I search my own heart, I don't know about you, but I have fallen short in so many ways. And it's like when I come to communion, I get a... I get a bath all over again. I get renewed in God's love, His grace, His forgiveness. Communion to me so far transcends mere ritual. It's something that grips my heart and that reminds me that I should walk with my eyes on Him and I should walk in gratitude. And because of what He's done for us, I should walk in humility. Humility. Boy, that's in short supply today in this world, isn't it? There's a lot of pride, a lot of arrogance, a lot of division, a lot of arguing, a lot of finger-pointing, not much of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul had told Timothy previously in chapter 3, the first nine verses, there's going to be terrible times in the last days. And it's always worded in such a way uh, like Jesus did in Matthew 24, like Peter did in, in 2 Peter 3, that these things will increase in intensity and and in frequency as the last days approach. So there, guess what? There's going to be more hurricanes. There's going to be more volcanoes. There's going to be more civil unrest. Jesus said wars and rumors of wars. These, these things are not the end, yet the end's to come. He says, but they are the beginning of birth pains, which means they're going to get worse. They're going to increase in frequency and intensity. Don't let these things discourage you. Did he talk about in here runaway inflation? In part, but he used different words. Did he talk about high prices at the gas pumps? He talked about the world collapse. But the church will be taken out of the world before we see much of that. But the godlessness that is all around us will either cause you to react in the flesh or react in the spirit. How do you react when people cut you off? How do you react when you're coming down Platt Avenue at five miles an hour over the posted speed limit and some idiot on a motorcycle passes you at 50 miles an hour over the speed limit. How do you react? And then gets in front of you and slams on his brakes. As if that weren't a test of your patience enough, he then flips you off. Is that, is that going to get worse? Uh-huh. Yeah, can we anticipate this? Do you know why? It's not that they are bad people. They don't know Jesus. They act like the world because they are of the world. They are in the world. They are of the world. They only know one master, and his name is Satan. And he's opposed to the work and plan and purposes and people of God. So expect that. 
Here's what you do. When people are pushing your buttons, the first time you feel like, my, my temperature's rising, pray for them. Pray for them. That's how you got saved. You were probably a jerk and somebody prayed for you and then you got saved and you're a better person for it. That's not a bad thing. So pray for them. Don't get mean. Don't get mean-spirited. Don't, don't, uh, don't react in kind. Only a fool does that according to the Proverbs. But Paul had said there's going to be terrible times in the last days and terrible people doing terrible things. Verse 10 then is the flip side of the coin. This is the good news where we see all of the bad news that's coming to pass increasingly in this sinful, fallen time, but it will ramp up as Jesus' second coming gets closer and closer. He is coming soon. Satan knows that he has but a little time. Satan knows that. He can read the signs of the times just like you and I, and he probably knows the Word of God better than you and I. Uses it against us often. But because he knows he has but a little time, he's going to ratchet up his action these last days. That's what I expect. You, however, look at verse 10 of chapter 3, 2 Timothy. You, however, he's speaking to his young protege, Timothy. You is emphatic in the original. Who cares what's going on in the world, Timothy? You have a unique responsibility. We, here, here's the problem. It can sound like a list of excuses after a while. Well, I'm mean because this guy was mean to me, or I reacted this way, or this person pushed my buttons, or this guy made me bad. Well, what Paul is telling Timothy, no, you're responsible for your own actions. Respond this way. Respond Christianly to unchristian people that treat you like they treat each other. They're of the world. They don't know any better. Tell them about Jesus Christ. It is so emphatic. You, Timothy, have a charge. You have a responsibility. And it stands in stark contrast to the godlessness and the false teachers that will characterize the end times. And boy, what a contrast the Christian is to the world that we live in today. We don't stand for division. We don't stand for political parties. We stand for Jesus Christ. You may have particular views on a wide variety of societal issues. That has nothing to do with your relationship with Jesus Christ. If your relationship with Him is tight, the fruit of the Spirit is there. Love, joy, peace. You need some peace? Love, joy, peace, patience. No, you, you got plenty of patience, don't you? Love, joy, peace, patience. Okay, so far we need every one of those. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Self-control. Hmm. You are in stark contrast to the world in which we live in today. Let your light so shine before men that they see your good deeds and give glory to God in heaven. At least, if not in this life, at the day of judgment, you, Timothy, you be different from these previous guys we just talked about. As I have been different from them, Paul says. He was conscious. Paul was always conscious of the example he was setting. Can I tell you, every single one of us in this room is setting an example for other people that are watching. For some of you, it's your children, your adult children, your grandchildren, coworkers. People are watching you. They expect you to be different. If you have told them that you are a Christian, they will hold your feet to the fire. But you have to be intentional to be a spirit-filled Christian. Didn't the Lord in the Old Testament under Jeremiah 29 say, you will seek me and you will find me, but only when you seek me with all of your heart? These last days are, are full of people that are playing games with God. They want a little God, but not too much. Not enough to stop their sin or their pursuit of, of selfish interests and indulgences. A little God is fine. They want to acknowledge the good old boy upstairs, but they don't want to bow the knee to him. They don't want to submit their lives to him. They don't want to surrender all of that. No, no. You have to be intentional to do those things. Be intentional in pursuing God, please. This is Labor Day weekend, but don't, don't stop yourself from laboring to put yourself in his presence. And do that again the next day, and the next day, and the next, every single day. Paul was very conscious of the example he was setting. Uh, you have to be intentional. People are watching all the time. You go to a restaurant, people are watching. You go, you go to watch a movie, people are watching how you react to things. People are watching all the time. 
Be intentional in your Christian walk. And quite frankly, <laughs> our best example, our example is really the best teacher for others. I mean, have you noticed those of you that have, how many of you have ever raised children? You've raised kids, have you noticed they never do what you say? But they always do what you do. You cuss, expect them to cuss. doesn't matter how many times you tell them not to cuss, they're going to follow your example. You say, I don't want my kids to be alcoholics. Then don't drink. That's kind of, they'll follow your example. They will follow your example. Sometimes that takes time. My dad was an abusive alcoholic, didn't come to faith in Christ Jesus until he was 67 years of age. But when he did, the change was radical. But know this, I'd been praying for my dad's salvation for more than 20 years. But when God finally got hold of him, I mean, when you're throwing seed, that's what kind of what we're doing in life, isn't it? We're just telling people God loves you. We're telling people about Jesus Christ. We're telling them how we got saved. We're going to Bible studies. We're learning. We're growing. But we're scattering seeds wherever we go. But you never know when it's going to come up. I remember several years ago, many years ago now, when King Tutankhamun's grave, his sarcophagus, was opened in ancient Egypt. He was buried with urns of wheat and barley. Great big urns of this stuff. He's buried with boats and slaves and a bazillion other things besides all of his costume jewelry and stuff like that. But it was fascinating because some interesting, uh, interested Hebrew uh, professors decided, we're going to take some of that seed out of there and plant it and see what happens. And that 4,000-year-old seed sprouted and came back to life. You never know. As you're throwing seed in this world, you never know it's going to respond to the gospel. Don't force feed anybody. Jesus said the fields are ripe unto harvest, but he didn't say harvest green grain. If they're not ready, walk away. This is not about you winning an argument or convincing somebody. If they're not ready, you've sown your seed, move on. Somebody else will come after you, maybe 4,000 years after you, and water it, and others will fertilize, but God will give the glory and the increase. But just be a Johnny Appleseed these last days. That's why you're here this morning. Get in the Word of God, then you've got something to share. Otherwise, what are you going to share? Well, what do you think of this weather? Does that sound shallow? It is. Well, what about them Broncos? I barely know what sport they play. I don't care about the Broncos, especially since they were bought out by Walmart. That's another sermon for another day, though. I'm not of this world. I'm not of this world. I don't care about that stuff. So please, if you want to do yourself a favor, don't, don't try to engage me in sports conversations. I don't care. It's not on my radar, and I know nothing about it. I'll just sound ignorant, and you'll, you'll laugh at me. That's fine. I'm not of this world. I don't want to talk about the weather. When I wake up tomorrow, if it's raining, I'm going to tell you what the forecast is. It's uh, rain. If it's dry and sunny, you know what it's going to be? Dry and sunny. Until God decides to change the weather. Want to know what the weather is? Wake up in the morning and look up at the sky. Have you found, as I have, that the meteorologists go outside and they flip a quarter and see heads or tails that it's going to be sunny or rainy today? Chance of rain, 50%. I could have come up with that forecast flipping a coin, 50-50. <sighs> I don't care about the weather. I'd like it to be cooler. <laughs> Looking forward to fall. I don't want to talk to you about the weather or sports. I want to talk about the Lord. I want to talk to you about Jesus. I want to find out where you're at spiritually. I want to know how I can come alongside of you. Is there something I can pray for you about? Can I love on you? Can I encourage you? How, how's that going between your, your loved one that's going through this, this terrible time in their lives? How's that financial setback working out for you? Or your son's surgery or 10,000 other things? And always bring these things before the Lord. You, however, boy, I just, you want to highlight verse 10. You, he's not talking to Timothy. That's God talking to you. You got to personalize this stuff. Understand this, God's got your number. He's got your number. My phone number's unlisted. You think that's a hindrance to God? You, however, you know all about, Timothy, my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, love, and endurance. He had demonstrated these things. He'd lived them out in front of Timothy. He didn't so much tell Timothy, do these things. He just lived out a Christian walk in front of the young man. 
And he picked it up. You want others to follow in your footsteps, lead them to a good place. Set a good example. In Christianity today, I fear that we have turned our liberty into license. And we tend to lean just a little bit too much towards excess. And I think that we should seek to avoid that. For me personally, that means I don't watch R-rated movies. I've seen alcohol do terrible things to good people, and I, so I, 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 I kind of avoid that. I, I just don't have any use for that. Because I find that, as Paul had described in Ephesians, if you're under the influence of the Holy Spirit or if you're under the influence of alcohol, and he equates the two, you do things that you would not normally do. If you're under the influence of alcohol, you're going to do things that sober you wouldn't do. You're going to say things that when you were sober, you wouldn't say those things. So also under the influence of the Holy Spirit, you will act and be a different person. You will talk differently. Your priorities will be different. So the Holy Spirit causes the average person like you and I to do and think and act in ways that we would not otherwise. So does alcohol. But that leads to excess and debauchery and wickedness. You're tempted to do sins when you're under the influence of alcohol. You probably wouldn't do otherwise. Don't let your guard down. I don't care if you drink or not. It's not a matter of legalism for me. You, that's between you and the Lord. Bible forbids drunkenness. You already knew that. When does drunkenness begin? As soon as you're impaired to any degree. Be careful. Be wise. Set a good example because people are watching you. Your sons and daughters will call out your sins to you face to face someday. And I want them to say, Dad tried his best to set a good example. He wasn't a perfect man, but he tried hard to follow the Lord. Kids, may, they may not do what I say, but they will always do what I do. Uh, Paul, Paul didn't merely teach these things to Timothy in some kind of academic sense. Timothy learned these things by carefully following Paul's example. And I think the best kind of Christianity isn't taught, it's caught. I'm not here to teach you things that you've never heard before out of the Bible or to tickle your interests or your historical fantasies or whatever else. I, 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 you already know the Word of God. If you've been in this church any length of time at all, you know the Word of God. You love the Word of God. You're filled with the Spirit of God. So it's not so much that I teach you from this pulpit so much as I encourage you to put into practice what you already know. How many of you know Christians are supposed to love one another? Okay, do it. Sermons should be very simple. Do it. Write it down. Feel free if you forget it later. Just write it, just write it down somewhere. Hit Pastor Jim's sermon this morning. Do it. I'm not here to make you a Bible scholar. I'm here to make you a better Christian. So I want you to follow my example as I follow Christ's, just like Paul had said to Timothy. Paul wasn't a perfect man. Timothy wouldn't be after him. But both of them were walking in the footsteps of Jesus. And because they understood that they had an obligation to live that way, they watched their lives very carefully. It wasn't a life of excess. We live, as I pointed out last week, in an age of hedonism, which is the pursuit of pleasure. That's why people drink. That's why people drink. It's a pursuit of pleasure. It feels good. They like the way it, it emboldens them. We live in an age of hedonism. We live in an age of narcissism where it's all about me. It's what I want that's really important. That's narcissism. We live in an age where that two-headed snake is alive and well. Hedonism and, and narcissism. And both of those will take you further away from God. Paul would say, do not think more highly of yourselves than you ought. In other words, stay humble. Stay humble because when you're humble, you're teachable. You don't know everything. You're kind and you're gentle. You don't need to always win an argument. In fact, you don't like to argue at all. What we believe, what we really believe will determine how we live. What you really believe will be seen in your lifestyle. Be sure to set a good example. Others are watching, especially the little ones. 
In this church, I've always seen my ministry as to just love those little guys. Just love them. Every chance I get, I, I give them a hug and I tell them God loves them. The little ones, Jesus said, don't forbid the little ones to come unto me, for such belongs the kingdom of God. You should be as humble and as unpretentious as a little child. Some of you need to work on that. You, however, Timothy, verse 10, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose. I just wanted to sow seed, my faith, my faith and trust, the hope and confidence was in God alone. And because He is sitting on the throne of my life, I've been patient. Isn't patience a fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5? In other words, the closer to get to God, you get to God, the less you argue because you're a patient person. Some of you argue too much in your homes. Some of you argue too much with other people. Or you go to restaurants and demand too much and tip too little. And uh, We need to rethink how practical is our Christianity. You shouldn't argue at home. Ever. If you're demonstrating the fruit of the Holy Spirit, if your purpose is to point people towards Jesus Christ, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are patient, if you are full of love and endurance, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is what he's just outlined in verse 10. You don't argue. There's nothing to argue about. Whatever you want to do, that's fine. I'll seek the Lord. I'd love being the, the head of my household, but that's not the same as being the dictator of my house and hoping to outshout my wife. If you have to elevate your voice at the house, it better be because a car is about to run over your kid or something. You shouldn't raise your voice ever otherwise. The only time Jesus ever did was when people were being interfered with worshiping God. In the court of the Gentiles, the, the religious leaders and priests had set up a bazaar. They were swapping animals and selling and exchanging coins and the ruckus with the braying animals and the noise and the sheep and the goats for sacrifice that had to be temple approved caused such a ruckus the poor Gentiles out there couldn't worship. That may really made Jesus mad. I don't want to hinder anybody from worshiping. Not ever. You can hinder the advancement of the cause of Jesus Christ by your actions out there in the world where you think the pastor Jim is not seeing me, so it doesn't matter how I act. You don't want to stumble your own self, your own testimony. People are watching you. Oh, they didn't hear me cuss. Pastor Jim will never hear about me a time I got drunk or was a little inebriated. We were just having fun. Hmm. There are several things that come our ways that are outlined for us here in verse 11. Persecutions, sufferings, you've seen it all, Timothy. You've seen it in my life. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. You saw that, Timothy. You saw God bring us through all of that stuff. Boy, I'll tell you what, Acts, the book of Acts in the New Testament chapters 13 and 14 Tell us a lot about Paul's missionary journeys and how hard it was. Nobody liked him. Nobody wanted to change. Nobody wanted to grow. He challenged the Jewish way of thinking about the Messiah, and he was stoned to death. He was whipped. He was beaten. He was imprisoned, shipwrecked three times. The man had a hard life, but he saw it as his goal. I just need to throw seed. I'm just throwing the seeds of the gospel out there. Jesus Christ, whether they accept what I say or not, that's between them and God, but I'm going to throw seed. And that's what he did all over Antioch. In fact, all of these are towns whether, that were in the province of Galatea, as the uh, Romans called it. They didn't call it Galatia. There, there's no way to pronounce that in Latin or in New Testament Greek. But in the province of Galatea, these towns like Antioch and Iconium, Lystra, uh, they were all small towns and villages where Paul had, had traveled. Now, Timothy was from Lystra. That was the very place that Paul had been stoned to death in Acts 14. Stoned to death. That was, a, that was a way of executing people in Jewish circles. You stoned them to death. Do you know how they did that? You start off by pushing them off a cliff if one is handy nearby. If not, you back them in the corner. Then the biggest rocks you can pick up, try to crush their head. 
And if they, you had a cliff you could push them off of, you buried them in a pile of stones. And that was an everlasting monument to people that violated the Jewish law. They were stoned to death. Pile of stones down there, son. You don't want to ever sass me. That guy sassed his mom and look what happened. Don't sass your mom. Pile of stones that stayed there for a long time. So whether Paul was stoned by being backed into a corner, he was left for dead. Isn't it interesting that he wrote the church at Corinth later on and said, I know a man who was taken into heaven one day and saw glorious visions that I'm not allowed to share with you, but I, I know that, I know about that. Maybe he was taken to heaven for a brief moment and had an out-of-body out of experience when he was stoned to death. Maybe God was talking to him upstairs for a while. He didn't share a lot of that with us, but it sure encouraged him in his ministry. In fact, when God raised him from the dead, he walked right back into the city of Lystra and started throwing seed again. Well, Paul, you got a little a cut right here. You know, you might want a little Band-Aid on that. He wasn't concerned about his own life. He was concerned very much about other people and how they were doing. His job was to encourage the church and those that didn't yet know Jesus Christ to love them to pray for him. I mean, I see that interaction between Jesus and Matthew, the tax collector. Do you, know, do you have any idea how bad Jews hated tax collectors? Jesus didn't hate them. Jesus doesn't hate anybody on this planet. He does not approve of their deeds, but he loves them. He loves them, and they just need to know that he loves them. Yeah, in this world there will be tribulation, as he has outlined, he experienced in verse 11 here, persecution, sufferings, the things that happened to him. You can read all about that in Acts chapter 14 yourself. Did you know that Psalm 34 19 says this in the Old Testament? A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Isn't that a glorious truth? We got troubles. Yep. This world is full of issues. Yep troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Psalm 34, 19. What is amazing to me is that the world really doesn't admire true Christian value. And the reason is this, because the true child of God brings the godly person under conviction of sin. That's why the world doesn't like you as a Christian. They want you to keep your values to yourself. You should embrace all of the world's values. You should be out there in the great gay pride parades with LGBTQ plus posters all. You should be doing that because that's what the world does. True child of God brings a worldly person under conviction. They're so irritated by your love and your patience and your goodness. Your, your very lifestyle makes them feel guilty. I mean, look at what they did to Jesus. He led the perfect life. Don't expect the world to admire your godly stance. Don't expect the world to applaud when you speak out against evil. What is evil? I don't define what's good or what's evil. The Bible does. So to me, it has be, oh, you're too legalistic, Pastor Jim. You're just a killjoy. No, I just follow Scripture. If God says it's a sin, it's a sin. It's not between you and me. This is not between you and God. You have sinned against a holy deity who sent his son to wash away your sins, but you would rather embrace your sin than his Savior. That's problematic. In the long run, it's fatal. The world has a habit of saying instead, crucify him, crucify him. John 16, Jesus said, in this world you will have troubles, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Oh, I love that. I love that. That's a highlighter passage. If there is one in the New Testament, highlight that. Life is tough. I get it. Been there, done that. I know what you're going through. It's difficult, and all of us have gone through a wide variety of unpleasant experiences and circumstances. In fact, verse 12 here in 2 Timothy 3 is, is one of my most unfavorite verses in the entire Bible. I know unfavored is grammatically incorrect, but it sure sums up the way I feel about it. Verse 12, in fact, everyone, say everyone. That includes the both of us, huh? You and me. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In John 15, 
Verse 18, Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of this world. That's why the world hates you. That's why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you, Jesus said, no servant is greater than his master. So if everybody loves you and you're the toast of the town, everybody thinks you're just the, the best, you know, uh, and, and the world just loves you to death, there's probably something seriously wrong with your Christian walk. In the world, but not of the world. If the world embraces you as its own and thinks you are just wonderful, maybe you've slidden into their realm instead of them into yours. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Hmm. You know, everyone who wants to live, do you want to live a godly life? Count the cost. But do you want to live a godly life? Are you in this to please God or the flesh, yourself? I want to live with all of my heart. I want to live a life that's pleasing to God. My flesh gets in the way, the sinful fallen world gets in the way. Satan gets in the way. Yep, 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 yep. But I want to, with all of my heart, want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. You know, when Jesus promises us persecution, have you noticed it? In those little books that you buy at the Christian bookstores claiming the promises of God, that you'll never find this promise in there? In this world, you will have tribulation. I've never seen that in the Jesus Promise book yet. Nobody wants to hear that. The kind of promises we want to hear. My God shall supply all of your needs. Yeah, that sounds good. That sounds good. God, Jesus loves me. Oh, that sounds good. I like that. Pick up your cross daily, deny yourself, and follow me. Oh, yeah. I like that one. They that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. We're not in love with that verse, but he's trying to warn us because many of these last days will fall away from the faith. It's too hard being a Christian, they're going to tell you. I tried, and I, just the pressure, my brothers and my sisters, my family and my coworkers, my friends drug me back into sin, and it's just easier to say yes to them. So they just keep dragging me back. Well, the question remains, do you want, verse 12, to live a godly life? Your choice. But know this, there are eternal consequences for the choices that you and I make. We are in an alien world. We're a stranger. We're just pilgrims passing through. This, this is not our home. This world is in rebellion against God. And if you align your life with God, you're going to find yourself out of alignment with the world. You can't serve two masters, Jesus said. And if we walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, we're out of alignment with this world and persecution will come. In John 3, 19, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, Jesus said, and men preferred, they loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. People make that choice. Why'd you get drunk last night? Well, I wanted to. Okay, nobody put a gun to your head. Why did you do X, Y, or Z? Well, that's what my flesh wanted to do. Or it's so easy to do it the wrong way. And yet, even in the world, they have you noticed they innately know right from wrong? There is a universal moral principle alive out there in the world that they refuse to acknowledge, but you and I know where it comes from. Let me just give you one for instance. Oh, let pick an attribute. Uh, how about cowardice? Cowardice. Isn't it interesting that in all time, on all continents, in all places, in all geographical people groups, no one has ever admired the quality of cowardice. There is no exam there is no exception, none in all of history. Nobody has ever admired cowardice. Where did we all get that same sense of moral correctness? 
We're made in the image of God. That's where it came from. Now, sin has marred that image to be sure. But we know in our heart of hearts when we've done wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. We know that. That's the definition of sin. We have all sinned and fallen short the glory of God. Would you agree with that? And I'm not the one who defines sin, but God is. That's why we need Jesus Christ. God so loved the world. That's us. The good, the bad, and the ugly. That's all of us. God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. That's what communion is all about. His blood was shed so mine might be spared. By His stripes, Isaiah said, we are healed. He took the whip on His back so I wouldn't have to take it on mine. All of my sins have been washed away. I'm clinging to Jesus. I'm clinging to Jesus, and I have no righteousness but His. So every single day is a new adventure where I'm trying hard to please Him because I want to live, verse 12, I want to live a godly life. He saved me. I owe Him everything. I give Him everything. Use it for Your glory, Lord. Here am I. I I think that is one of the fundamental missions in life is to find out what God wants you to do and say and be think. And He wants to just bless you with the knowledge of His perfect will all the time. He wants to lead you and guide you and direct you. He is called the great shepherd for a good reason. Peter would put it this way regarding the trials and tribulations that are a part of life in a sinful fallen world. 1 Peter 4, 12, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you, like you would assay the purity of a metal as though something strange were happening to you. So don't expect the world to speak well of you or applaud you living a a godly lifestyle or taking a stand for righteousness. The world's hatred, it's not rational, it's not objective. Ultimately, it's demonic. It's demonic. Satan is three times by Jesus in the Gospel of of John called the prince of this world, the archon, the ruler of this world. That's why we are engaged in the spiritual warfare that we are. I mean, have you noticed how much of society just doesn't make sense today? We're anticipating a a, a utilities crisis here in America, so uh, we all want you to buy electric vehicles, but out in California, we don't have enough electricity, so we're asking you not to charge your electric vehicles. Excuse me? I thought we all, we all bought into this. Now we can't charge? Our, really? You can't buy a gas lawnmower in California. Pollutes too much. What percentage of all global emissions is because we're mowing our lawns in Southern California? Can anybody answer that for me? Oh, about one trillionth of one percent? Really? Realize America is responsible. All of America's global emissions only total less than 11% of all global emissions, and yet everybody's busting our chops to be green, and nobody's busting China and India's chops. What is that? If we became a zero-polluting nation tomorrow morning, it would not improve the global situation at all. So what is this green energy lie that's being foisted upon us that causes us to buy things from from people that don't like us, like China? And do you know how much fossil fuels are burned in the mining of things to make the batteries and electric cars? Roughly 50 tons of ore has to be processed to make one electrical vehicle's batteries. And all of those ore mining equipment are driven by dirty diesel engines. I mean, there's a, this world does not make sense. We have an energy crunch here in Colorado Springs, so why don't we take the Walter Drake power plant offline? Uh, okay, what's your replacement plan? Ooh, don't got one. Oh, a couple of years from now, maybe, you know, five, four, five, ten years from now, we'll have another power plant online. So why'd you shut it down then? Does it make sense? None of this makes sense. This world doesn't make sense anymore. You've got to take your eyes and elevate them from the standard of this world and say, Jesus Christ is King and He's coming back soon, and He will set all wrongs right. He'll set them right. He'll take care of of everything that is so, so wrong today. 
Verse 13, and all the while you and I are trying to live a godly life, evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Why are they called imposters? Because they want to convince you they're good people, but in actuality they are not. What do you call those kind of people besides hypocrites? Politicians? <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah, maybe you've got a, a unique word for that. While evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Somebody once told me, how do, here's, do you know how you can tell if a politician is lying? And I said, no, how? And they said, their mouth is moving. What a sad state of affairs that is. I mean, 245 years ago in this country, they got together for prayer. These are interesting times that we live in. Verse 14, but as for you, Timothy, in opposition to all of these things, the diametrical polar opposite, you continuously continue in what you have learned and become convinced of because you know those from whom you have learned it. Not just Paul, but his mother, his grandmother were godly influences in his life. And how from infancy you have known these holy scriptures. I mean, in an average Jewish household, their, their formal education in Jewish law started when the kid was five years old. Well, what Paul is saying is you knew the law before that because of your, the godly influence of your mom and your grandma. Your dad was a pagan Greek. Okay, that, that's irrelevant. But there was godly influence in your home as your parents or your mom and your grandma were taking you through Scripture even before you were five years old. So, for those of you that have young children, keep that in mind. For, I mean, you should be singing them praise and worship songs when you're in your tummy. Get them used to hearing that. My kids were all raised on praise and Maranatha praise and worship music. So they came out of the womb singing, you know, <laughs> the glories of God. That was glorious. Verse 16, as we close out our study this morning, and you really want to take this one to heart. Verse 16, all, say all, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God, the woman of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture, how much of the Bible that you hold in your hand is God-breathed? All of it. That's why it's profitable to read the Old Testament. It's the Word of God. Amen. We understand that it's fulfilled by Jesus Christ in the New Testament. The whole Old Testament looks forward to Him. But I'll tell you what, you need to understand, well, I don't read the Old Testament. It doesn't seem relevant. That's the only book Jesus ever quoted. He only quoted from the Old Testament. Paul only quoted from the Old Testament. If you don't read the Old Testament, you have just deleted three-quarters of the Word of God. Thirty-nine books in the Old Testament, all of them long and lengthy, most of them. In the New Testament, 27, they tend to be much shorter and abbreviated. But the Word of God, it keeps me balanced every day to read a chapter out of the Old Testament, a chapter out of the Psalms or Proverbs, and a chapter out of the New Testament keeps me balanced. Understand, we serve a Jewish carpenter who kept the law for us. You should be fairly familiar with that. How many of you know that we will be ruling and reigning with Jesus in the millennial kingdom? Do you know that? That's you and I. You say, well, I don't want to rule. That's tough. You're going to anyway, but you'll like it then. So it's not a big deal. What law will we be enforcing throughout the thousand-year reign of Christ? Have you ever thought about that? The Old Testament law. That's what will the law of the whole earth will be. If we know it now, we can understand how Jesus used it to glorify His heavenly Father. You find the love of God in the Old Testament. You see His leadership, His guidance, His sovereignty, His grace. Oh, you find all of these things. They have their foundation in the Old Testament. Moses hid in the cleft of the rock and in Exodus. Uh, God puts him in the cleft of the rock and passes in front of him, and he declares himself to be a God of mercy and love and compassion. He's never changed. Some people think that the God of the Old Testament kind of had some anger management issues. 
But Jesus, when he came along, it's kind of sloppy, agape, maybe just a touch effeminate. No, 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 no. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He hasn't changed at all. But those gentle characteristics that we love about Jesus have their foundation in the God of the Old Testament. There's so much that is learned there. So let me just encourage you, all Scripture is God breathes. Peter alludes to this in 2 Peter 1.21. He says, prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In fact, in the book of Acts, Luke says, David by the mouth of the Holy Spirit spoke, saying, and then he ascribes the Psalms of David as the work of the Holy Spirit. They're written by God. Pastors work in the church today comes right out of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, where God says, in the last days, I'm going to place some gifted men amongst you to help you navigate your way through these last days. It was He who gave some to be apostles, can't all be apostles, some to be prophets, can't all be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastor-teachers. Well, that's my calling. I get to be a pastor. Pastor means I shepherd you and love you. Teacher means I just tell you what the Word of God says and how to put it into practice in your life. Very uncomplicated. And here's my purpose. All of these gifted people that he just named, our purpose is to prepare God's people for works of service. Well, pastor, you're the professional. This is You should do it. No, this is your job. My job is to prepare you for the mission field that lies outside the back door. That's where, your, that's where your work begins, your mission field begins, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Boy, I would like to see a united church these last days. I don't, I don't Catholics versus Protestants versus this denomination or that one, I... I Satan has done a masterful job of dividing the body of Christ. I am a Christian. I am blood-bought. So are you. I don't care where you go to church. We're all in this hot mess together. That's our identity. Some want to go to a Baptist church. Praise God. Some prefer Methodists or Lutheran. I don't care as long as they're sitting under somebody who's teaching them the Word of God. Why is that important? Because all Scripture is God-breathed. That's why I can't stand topical sermons. We go verse by verse through the Word of God. A, because that's the way it was written. There's a novel thought. Secondly, it makes the most amount of sense when I acknowledge the context. There is stuff that goes above it and below it that helps us to come to an informed decision as to what it actually means. All Scripture is God-breathed. And it is used by the pastor teachers to educate you, yes, to change you, yes. All Scripture is suitable, it's useful for Teaching, yeah, I can teach you what God requires of you. Rebuking, I don't like that. But every once in a blue moon, you wind up with somebody who just because of the hardness of their heart, uh, they bring their willful and unrepentant sin arrogantly to the church and then pride themselves in sitting here in the church and thinking that there's no accountability. Sometimes you have to, I have to, as pastor, rebuke those kind of people. Sometimes we correct wrong thinking. That's what the job of the pastor is, to simply tell you what the Word of God is. But a lot of times this is going to have, if it hasn't happened in this church yet, it will, I promise you, where you're going to hear something from this pulpit going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and you go, well, now wait a minute, I heard something else from another pastor. Okay, well, let the Word of God correct you. Because did you know, let me give you let me give you a heads up. Pastors can be wrong. Don't believe a single word I say unless I can base it off of the Word of God. I don't want to teach about the Word of God. I want to teach the Word of God. So you don't need a topical sermon. And anybody that serves you a consistent diet of that, you should run from as fast as you can. There are parts of the Word of God that's going to step on my toes. That's okay. I need to learn and grow and change. If you don't think you, I don't need to do those things, you're probably in the wrong church. All of us need to learn and grow and change, and the agent of that change is the Word of God administered to the people of God by the Spirit of God. 
That's all it is. The Word of God put into practice by the people of God, by the Holy Spirit of God. This is a supernatural walk. I promise He's going to lead you through every bit of life's difficulties. Lean on Him. Lean on me when you're not strong. Okay, just put God in there and see Him as the one who is teaching you and when necessary correcting or rebuking you. What He's doing is training you in righteousness so that you, the man or woman or child of God, verse 17, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's the value of the Word of God. It equips me for what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but God did, and so He had us right here, right now, for a reason, for a purpose. God is meeting you right where you're at, emotionally and spiritually, and all you've got to do is hear what the Holy Spirit has to say to the church and say, Lord, here am I. Your Word has the final say. I will do what you say. I will conform my life your principles, and when I sin and when I blow it, I will ask you to forgive me my sins and give me a fresh start all over again, and He will. He loves you so much. And it's not based on your performance. It's based on the performance of His Son, which was perfect. You don't need to be perfect because He already was. I'm not excusing your sin or anybody else's. I'm striving to live as perfect a life as I can, but I fall short. He is my righteousness. Jesus is my righteousness. I have none compared to Him. And someday we'll stand before Him clothed in in white garments that are going to be gleaming. I can't wait to see Him. Okay, where's the praise band? Let's come on up and sing. Let's the rest of us stand and close in prayer, shall we? There will be an increase in godlessness these last days, but don't be surprised and certainly don't despair. It's okay. God has navigated these waters before. And like Paul, like Timothy, choose to be different than the unbelievers around you. You don't have to talk like them. You don't have to be angry like them or frustrated like them. Don't be duped by false teachers or those that claim to be Christians but are, in fact, wolves in sheep's clothing. And don't serve God just because it's convenient or easy. Serve Him because He's God and because He loves you and He created this entire universe. We breathe His air. We drink His water. We stand on on terra firma because of of His grace. So, you know, from time to time, you might consider just saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you for the air we breathe, the water we drink. I want to be attentive to His voice always, whether it's easy or not. To me, is irrelevant. Whether it's convened or not, I don't care. Life's short. Eternity's a long time, so I want to do it right these last days. Heavenly Father, I commit myself and these precious friends of mine into your hands. We all struggle in so many ways, and we are such an imperfect people. But my prayer is for our perfection. My prayer is that you would so fill us with your Holy Spirit that we would walk out of here this morning full of love and joy and peace and patience, that we would be affirmed again, that we would devote ourselves anew and afresh to Your Word. Your Word has the final say. I don't determine what is sin and what is not. You've outlined it in Your Word. But the world doesn't know You. It doesn't know Your Word. And my prayer is, Lord, that these last days that we would be a shining light to the world and stand for righteousness, that we would do what is right. We would say what is right because we've been in the right book, consumed with the right priorities. We love you so much, Father, and commit ourselves into your hands, us, our children, our children's children, in Jesus' name. Perhaps can we do that?